It's good to see you this morning. Now, let me invite you to join me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to John chapter 4. And you can be finding verse 27. And as you're turning there, I'll, I'll mention something that you may notice in a minute when we read this passage together. It, it really is striking to hear this conversation that Jesus is about to have with his disciples right after we have looked at the one he just had with the Samaritan woman. It was water with her. It will be food with them. But for both of them, he will say something that creates a misunderstanding in their minds. They both will misunderstand him before he is finished teaching them. They are not at all in the same place before our Lord as she was. Uh, we know that because we've seen the things that these disciples have already experienced uh, with Jesus in this gospel. But there is something that they have yet to comprehend. In fact, there's much that they don't yet comprehend. They are slow to do that in a lot of ways uh, because they do not yet appreciate, and this is what we'll see especially this morning, in terms of their slowness to comprehend, they don't yet appreciate the implications of the time that they are living in. Uh, This is something that's very easy for us to do. When something momentous comes and changes everything, we can be very slow, even when we're living in the midst of that, we can be very slow to appreciate the significance of that thing. We have a pretty handy example Uh, readily available to us right now, maybe a weak example compared to what we'll see in our text. Uh, But in in the latter months of 2019, uh, on that first day that you might have heard on a news report uh, passing uh, comment about a virus affecting China, a new type of coronavirus, you had no idea, did you, uh, of the inevitable implications that that new reality was going to produce. None of us did. It was here, and we could even hear about it, but we were not quickly able to sense the import of what was just going on in front of us. We're often very slow to grasp implications. That's the case with the disciples here this morning, and they're about to take, it seems, a good-sized step forward in appreciating some of what it means that Jesus Christ is standing there present with them on that day. Now, let's read the text together. I'll read verses 27 all the way down to verse 42. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? John's Gospel continues in this way, beginning in verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, The disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. And see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. 
and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We'll walk through this text this morning in three sections. The first will be verses 27 to 30. And what we have there is going to be something of a behind-the-scenes situation or a behind-the-scene. The principal thing we're to see in this passage is in the second piece we'll take, verses 31 to 38. The first part will inform us of some things that are going on while that is taking place. Uh, But the main focus is 31 to 38. We'll see there Jesus discipling the disciples. And then finally in verses 39 to 42, we will hear really the conclusion to both of Jesus' confrontations. He's confronted the Samaritan woman last week. He will confront his disciples here with some reality. And both of those confrontations find their conclusion then in verses 39 to 42. But we begin with the first four verses. Look again at verse 27. Let me reread these down to verse 30. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, as we're following this narrative, uh, this story, there are several important things for us to start to notice here. The first one serves a goal that I I very much hope to succeed in this morning, uh, and that is the goal of uh, helping us create a visual in our minds of these events. It seems that John presents them to us in a particular way even to help us to visualize what's going on, the timing even of what's happening in these accounts. It's a very powerful visual. Uh, Notice first that it says at the beginning, it says, just then his disciples return. Jesus is, it would seem then, literally, just finishing his response to this woman. He will have just said, I who speak to you am he. And here they come, walking up, these disciples. It almost seems like their reemergence here is something of a sudden thing in terms of their conversation. They're very locked in with each other. Maybe there's something, uh, maybe the path from the town to the well is obscured in some places where they might not have noticed the disciples approaching until they got relatively close. But it seems that this stops the conversation right in its tracks. Uh, However, the woman at this point has heard enough, hasn't she? We mentioned that last week that although their interactions are not done at the end of that verse, the confrontation is done. She has heard what he needed her to hear. And such is the state of her thinking at this point. After those three attempts to, to evade the personal confrontation, and such are the realizations that are dawning in her head that she leaves... And she leaves her water jar there. These things are not all that light. It took some work to get this thing out to the well. She's getting there to draw water for the day. She leaves it, and off she goes, dashing back into town. Uh, And just notice, before we get to the disciples' surprise, notice what the rest of this paragraph will tell us about the woman. She runs into town. She declares excitedly the content of verse 29 there. Come see a man who just told me everything I ever did. Uh, She tells the townspeople this. What does that look like? Were they all gathered in one place for some reason in the middle of the day? Could be. Were they not? So that what she's really doing is going from place to place and trying to get as many people as she can. Repeating this over and over. But she makes this call to the town and they follow her. Remember who it is that's talking to them. She's already, it's, it's, it's quite clear that this is a woman who has been living a life of ostracism from her community. 
She works to avoid these people. And they know that. And all of a sudden, she's knocking at the door, imploring them to come and see this man. This sudden intensity and, and boldness toward them must have made quite an impression. Because at that word, verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. They are, their attention is caught. They want to see and investigate this situation. It says there that they were coming to him. Not they came to him, but they were coming to him. And the next word that John gives us makes it clear why he put it that way. Because what he's doing is he's setting up the scene in our heads. We've followed the woman into town. We've heard what she said. And now these people are beginning their walk down to the well to uh, check this out. They're on their way out to the well. And as they're coming, verse 31, meanwhile, this discussion is starting up with these disciples. Do you see how the gospel writer has put this very specifically so that we've got a movie going on in our heads? Now we know that as he is going to talk to his disciples, here comes this group. Right? This is very helpful to us in, in, in having a sense of the timing of these things. Now, as far as the disciples are concerned, uh, again, here, as we've seen with some other interactions with Jesus, John has given us some information in verses 27 to 30 to set up the interaction. Two things in particular. He makes a point of the shock that they experienced when they came upon Jesus and the Samaritan woman. The NIV translates that as surprise. It says in verse 27, they were surprised to find him which personally I think is very weak. Uh, this is a word that shows, that shows up in extreme situations. This is the reaction that is described when miracles happen right in front of people. Is there surprise there? Well, certainly there is. But several translations say things like marveled or shocked. And personally, I think that gets the idea across a little bit more than the word surprised. I think those are better. They cannot believe what they are seeing as they come up to the well here with the food they've purchased. And their shock comes at their finding him sitting there alone talking to a woman. We're helped here. We know a great deal about the, what were the proper Jewish cultural behaviors and perspectives on gender relations. I'll share with you something that Leon Morris wrote about this. He said, of that time, whatever might be thought of the propriety of asking for a drink, no rabbi would have carried on a conversation with a woman. One of their sayings ran, a man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even his sister with his sister or his daughter, on account of what men may think. A man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman, on account of what men may say. These are the standards. There's an account that was so uh, impactful even to them that we, we find it recorded in several different records of a Jewish rabbi named Yosei the Galilean in the first century, this is in, in this time period, who, who was heard once this interaction and so it was written down. He is traveling and he asks a woman, by what road do we go to Lydda? To which she replied to him, Foolish Galilean, did not the sages say this? Engage not in much talk with women? You should have asked, by which to Lydda? Do you see what her point is? You fool, there was a faster way to ask me that. You're talking to a woman. You shouldn't have said, by what road do we go to Lydda? You should have said, by which to Lydda? Don't you know that the wise men tell you not to engage in much talk with women? This, this is the expectation. And the disciples walk up and find Jesus alone with this Samaritan woman engaging back and forth in conversation. Now, this is an aside. This is not the point of, of our sermon this morning or of the passage. But there is something that we have to notice in that before we go on. Jesus was not at all beholden to the cultural norms of his Jewish society then, was he? 
He and his disciples know these expectations. They know the rules. And Jesus teaches them by his own example that some of them are unacceptable and ought to be ignored. And he leads out in that. So this kind of thing happens. You have women counted among his disciples. You have multiple individual conversations with women. You have the gospel accounts honoring women by recording that, that the, first, uh, the first witnesses to the resurrected Christ were a group of women coming down. All of these, these, uh, these things that strike at the current day expectations in terms of these things. You have all of that. You know what that means. That means that when he teaches and when his disciples through their writings teach their master's commands and descriptions and instructions concerning differences between men and women that are creational differences, it means that there's just no way to buy the claim made by liberals today that the New Testament in those places is just revealing the prejudices of its own day. The apostles are, are swimming in that world. They can't escape from that. That's all that they know. So we have to take that into account as we read what the Bible says about men and women. Passages like this make that an absolutely impossible argument to make. Jesus knew these things, and he taught his disciples a particular way, often in complete rejection of some of those expectations and standards. So it's good for us to notice that. Now, in terms of the information that John is giving us here about the disciples, notice what he adds in the second half of verse 27. That came upon this conversation, it says, But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away. What that adds here is just a very particular point of emphasis. It tells us that these disciples have no idea what has just happened. They're coming back to Jesus, they're about to have this interaction with him, and they're doing it completely ignorant of the conversation that has just taken place between him and this woman. They don't know where she's going or why or what may happen. They're coming into this blind. And John makes that clear to us by emphasizing that they didn't ask any clarifying questions as they come up and as she goes. Instead, they start getting out the food. It's what they went to the town to do, was to get lunch. And this brings us into the second portion this morning, into verses 31 to 38. In verse 31, they urge Jesus to eat. And so here then, while the woman, remember what we know now, while she is running back to town and getting the townspeople together and bringing them back, Jesus begins to disciple his disciples. We could do a, a compare and contrast here. Uh, on the one hand, there's a big gap between the Samaritan woman and the disciples. I've mentioned already, they already know him in a profound way from what they have experienced. They've already been making confessions about who he is uh, as the Son of God, for example. John 1.49, they confess this. They've already seen the water-to-wine miracle right in front of them. And it says in John 2.11, they saw that and they believed in him. They're not in the same place that she was. So there's some difference there. On the other hand, this interaction Jesus is about to have with them sounds very similar in some ways to what he's just needed to do with this woman. She talked to him about water. They'll talk to him about food. He will make comments about water that she completely misunderstands. He will make comments to them about food that they completely misunderstand. Each of those misunderstandings strategically, purposely inserted by Jesus so as to be able to teach them and clarify something for them. For her, it was the significance of who this is that she's talking to. For them, it's going to be the significance of this moment in time the significance of their setting in redemptive history in light of his presence there with them. In other words, we're going to see here, they do not recognize the urgency of the moment and they don't recognize the blessed consummation of the moment in history that they're living in the midst of. You're sitting there talking to me about food and there's nothing wrong with that, 
but you have no idea what just happened. Right here. It's time you start to understand that you are living in days full, disciples, of prophetic fulfillment all around you. He begins this conversation with them by saying in verse 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Do you remember... Do you remember how casually and yet decisively and incisively Jesus lit the fuse on the conversation with the Samaritan woman when he just asked her for something to drink? He knew what he was doing. And he knew where he was going to lead her. And he just says, can I have a drink? Would you give me a drink? Well, here he goes again. He has their attention now. We just went. I didn't see anybody. Who, who could have brought him Food. And of course, this is his intent. His intent is to get their attention. Uh, When he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about, it's not as if he was literally, miraculously given physical sustenance through his conversation with the Samaritan woman. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is leading them to a point he intends to make. And here's how he responds to their confusion. This is how he begins to teach them. He says, my will is to do... Excuse me. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. There are two pieces to that. He's conveying his passion to bring salvation to the world through the knowledge of him. As he says in Luke 19.10, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. It's what he has come for. That's his passion. What he's calling his disciples to, to hear is excitement and expectation. And I think given what he's about to say, expectation is the operative word here. This describes to them how he feels about doing God's will, but it says more than that. It it conveys that he's not just doing a work or continuing a work, he is bringing a work to completion. His food is to accomplish the work that God has been doing, that he's been sent to do. But listen, it says more than that, too, as he's telling this to them. He's telling them, furthermore, that they ought to be living under zealous expectation that God's will would be accomplished around them. This is not just a planting time for some accomplishment that is coming down the road. My brothers, you're living in the midst of accomplishment. And we see him turn their attention in just that way in the question he asked them in verse 35. Look again there. He says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? It's important for us to recognize as they stand there at that well, it is not four months until the harvest. He's not speaking something that they would have been casually saying to one another as they ate their lunch. That's not the time of the year. What he's doing here is he's employing the first of two sayings that are common in their time, two proverbial sayings. This is the first one he grabs to teach them for a number of reasons that we won't get into. The sense that we have of this figure of speech or this saying of theirs, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest, is that what they meant by that is something like, there's no need to be in a hurry. You just can't rush some things. Something like what we mean when we say, Rome wasn't built in a day, right? Settle down, pace yourself. Don't be, don't be too expectant in the near. We're playing the waiting game in this season. What he's telling them is they, they can no longer be thinking in that way about the time that they are living in. So if I could suggest something of a paraphrase here, you might just let your eyes wander through verses 34 and 35 as you hear this. I I see him saying something like this to his disciples. Verse 34, brothers, I am zealously energized because not only am, am I doing the will of the Father, but since I know my place in God's plans, I know that I am about to bring this work to accomplishment. I'm going to see the reaping of the fruit of my own labors. Verse 35, Don't people say these days, slow and steady, Rome wasn't built in a day? But listen, I tell you, 
Look. I mean, lift up your eyes. Look. See that the fields are ready for harvest right now. And when they do that, when he tells them that, and they do that with their eyes, do you know what they see? They see a city of Samaritans walking down the road to investigate this report that they have heard. Probably with the Samaritan woman right at the head of the pack. Four more months and then comes the harvest? Now look, it's harvest time right now. You're living in the midst of harvest time. Now this does bring us to some relatively difficult and important questions as we're thinking about verses 36 to 38. I'll read these again. The question is, what are the kinds of distinctions that he's drawing here? Who, who, who are reapers and sowers? What is he saying has changed? Look at verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Do you hear the emphasis at the outset of this with the word already? I mean, that's where the emphasis lies. Done is the time when the sowers have their season and the reapers have theirs. And the sowers are being paid for their working while the reapers are waiting for their season to earn that money. No. As we speak, the reaper is on the payroll, and he is getting paid, and he is gathering fruit for eternal life. What we need to understand this morning is that he is declaring that the long-awaited promise of the Old Testament prophets is here. We're talking about eschatology here in the Gospel of John. He's declaring the beginning of the last days. One of the central ways that the New Testament describes this is by describing the coming of the kingdom of God. And Ken mentioned at the beginning this morning uh, the notion that we may be coming to the text in John where we first see the kingdom of God. In essence, that's really true. Jesus mentions kingdom of God twice as he was talking with Nicodemus. Just in passing, doesn't expand or explain, he mentions the concept. And that's the only place that kingdom of God will come up in John's gospel. Nowhere else do the words get mentioned in the Gospel of John. It's very interesting. Uh, And it's interesting because, and I think it's the case because, in the other three Gospels, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, kingdom of God is absolutely all over the place. John is introducing here and is going to be filling with meaning the same concept, kingdom of God, only he's not going to use that, that term as he does it. The kingdom of God in the New Testament is the place on earth where the reign of the king comes and is submitted to. Where the king reigns, there the kingdom of God is. Now you might ask the question, I mean obviously God reigns over all things all the time, right? When is it the case that God is not in control and in authority over all things? That's certainly the case. But that's not what we're talking about, and that's not what the New Testament is talking about when it speaks of the coming of the kingdom of God. We're talking about the present experience of that in redemptive history. So it's the kind of thing that the Old Testament prophets spoke of and promised, foresaw in the future the coming of a kingdom. I'll read a couple of examples of that to you. One is in Isaiah chapter 9. We read beginning in verse 2, and I'll skip a bit of this for time's sake. But in Isaiah 9, we read this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this is a promise of something that is not yet, as he writes, but will be. And it's promised. Zechariah 9 is another place that speaks of this. We read in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the speaking of and the promising of the coming of the king. And when he comes, he will bring his authority, his reign with him. And it's what they've been waiting for. You remember, it's been, it's been several hundred years at this point since the Old Testament scriptures. The last word they have is the word from these prophets telling them what God is going to do, telling them to trust him and wait and hope and believe. And this is what they're waiting for. They're waiting for the kingdom of God to come as the king comes. And Jesus shows up in Israel and says in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. Repent and believe in the gospel. John doesn't use the term kingdom of God in our passage here, but he quotes Jesus referencing those kinds of passages and giving clear prophetic description that the kingdom reality uh, that he's talking about uh, and that they were talking about is here and it's seen in this fact of there being both a reaping and a sowing taking place. Let me show you one more of these and I would ask you to turn to this one and look at this with me. Turn back to Amos chapter 9. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. At least that's how the song goes that Roxanne taught me when I was little. Amos 9. And start at verse 11. I point you to verse 11 just to notice the context that he's going to be talking about here. Verse 11 says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches. The fallen booth of David. David here, this is the Davidic king and the Davidic kingdom. That's the kingdom that the prophets are jumping off of and are pointing to as they speak about messianic fulfillment. It's the coming true of the promises God made to David that there would be one of his line who would reign forever on a throne. So that's what they're talking about here. Now see verse 13 with your own eyes and notice that this is what Jesus is alluding to here. Amos 9.13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. My friends, the planter of grape seeds isn't working in the same season as the, uh, as the, um, uh, the reaper or the treader of grapes. There's some time that has to happen in between those, right? The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. That's interesting. Jesus is in Samaria right now. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. When this day comes, remember 13, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When this day comes, the days that he's 
saying are coming, such is going to be the prosperity and fruitfulness in God's kingdom that workers from two different seasons are going to run into each other trying to get this work done. When you're an agrarian society and fruitfulness looks like that, do you know what you do when the reaper and the sower run into each other because so much work is to be done? You high-five each other on the way through. There's some real excitement if such is the fruitfulness of that season, of that day. This will represent God's blessing being poured out upon his people, reaping and sowing, happening together. And what will be the result? Well, Amos doesn't say it this way. But Jesus does in verse 36, and it sure does fit. Sower and reaper will rejoice together. This is the great coming day of God's king. This is what the Old Testament chose to describe, what it will be like when God's king comes, when all of what's been promised is is arriving for his people. He comes bringing his rule. He comes bringing his kingdom. That's what it will be like in that day. And Jesus says, lift up your eyes. Look at this city of Samaritans coming to hear the news of the kingdom. It's not four more months until the harvest. You're already in the time. It's here. The reaper is receiving wages and gathering fruit. In fact, you don't even have to go out to gather it today. Lucky you. It's walking to you. We have to move on past this, but let me read one more passage to you. Because it drives home, I think, just how much it's true that this Old Testament language of sowing and reaping is intended to represent God's king rescuing his people. It's the passage that we read at prayer this morning, Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. You know what it's like to be in a dream and that's just the real world and then you suddenly wake up? And you realize that reality was so much different than you thought it was five seconds before. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. He is thinking about it and then he's praying for it. Oh God, bring that day. Restore our fortunes. What will it be like? Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping. Boy, isn't that a good description of life without the king. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Sowers don't need sheaves. I'm no farmer, and I think I understand that. But in this day, this coming day of fulfillment, such is going to be the fruitfulness for God's kingdom that the sower will need to bring his sheaves with him. When that day comes, God is restoring the joy of his people. And Jesus says, look around. You're urging me to eat my lunch, and you don't even understand what is happening right here in front of you. The nations are coming to the kingdom of God. Salvation has come to the nations. To reference Leon Morris one more time, he says, this sums up the main point of this chapter, that the conversion of the Samaritans is the first sign of the universality of salvation in Christ. And that, in essence, is all that we need to see from the third portion of our text this morning. The final part, verses 39 to 42. This woman's testimony of Christ and their subsequent contact with him directly, what this has done in the heat of that day is that it has set free a group of captives in Samaria. A king has come and subdued lovingly rebels to himself in mercy. 
Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Verse 41, many more believed because of his word. The impact of her testimony alone leads them to come out in hope and to invite him to stay with them a while longer. And two days later, think of it, two days later, the Samaritan inhabitants of this town have concluded, this indeed is the Savior of the world. What must he have said to them to bring them to that, to so convince them of that? It's an unusual way to hear Jesus spoken of in the Gospels. And remember what we saw from verse 25 last week. The Samaritans didn't even believe in a coming Messiah. Not like the Jews did. The Samaritans were waiting for a coming prophet to come and teach them. Not a Messiah to come and save them. And yet in two days, their entire worldview and the one that guided their own identity as Samaritans is turned upside down. Exactly upside down. And they point at this Jew and declare, Savior of the world. Savior of the world. This man's presence and his teaching has changed the world. World history is just a study of that on a grander scale, isn't it? World history has been upended by the gospel. And this town is a tiny microcosm of that, isn't it? These were people like every other people. There were things about who they were that were problems that needed to change, and they knew it. Think of the Samaritan woman's guilt and shame and sin. There were things about them that were problems that they didn't know needed to change. And the way that God comes to them The way that he condescended to them and loved them and led them into conformity with his kingdom was by bringing them to Jesus. They're confronted with him personally and they're confronted with two days worth of teaching from him. And that's enough to bring them to understand who they were and what their true need is before God. And I would suggest to you this morning there's a great deal we can take from what we have just seen. In terms of moving from what we are experiencing and seeing to how we are going to live now as Christians, there's a great deal of application that can come out of this. And I think in particular, this passage would lead us to changes and to steps forward regarding, um, you could say, steps toward his word and steps toward the lost world around us. Can you see the clear connection with both of them? Do we expect less of God in terms of his power and ability that his teaching would change humankind? Do we expect less of God than what we just saw demonstrated here? They got two days of teaching with the Lord Jesus Christ and everything about the way they thought changed. What you and I hold in our hands as we have our Bibles open is simply that. It is simply what the Samaritans received in those two days, except that it's far, far better. It is organized. It is complete, the complete revelation of God concerning the gospel. And the obvious lesson from this encounter is There is every reason for us, and maybe this is something that that we can hear and meditate on and can, can signify repentance for us. We all go through seasons where this kind of repentance is a need. We have every reason from this text to begin again to come to God's word praying David's psalm that he prayed in Psalm 139, coming to his word and saying, search me, O God and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God's revelation to us can do that. It has power to do that, to expose us, to cut us where we would never be able to see on our own and to lead us in the way everlasting. 
So it just stands as a powerful reminder to us this morning. Are our lives reflective of a people of the book? Are you coming to God's word expecting it to know you? Expecting it to surprise you? Being willing that it would surprise you at times and expose you to yourself and transform you? This is what it claims to do. This is what it offers to us as we come to it. We have to remember as we think that way about the power and transformative effectiveness of the Word of God, we have to remember that there are two groups in this morning's story. I think they serve as good um, maybe analogies. There are Samaritans here and there are disciples. Uh, There are, in our life, there are times where there are something like mountaintop experiences with God's Word, where lives change in two days. And there are years-long encounters with God's Word, where transformation moves very slowly. That is well represented by the disciples. That's what we see all through the Gospel of John. And John will give voice to it, and Jesus will give voice to it. The reality that sometimes God's Word changes us slowly. So if you, if you move back toward God's word expectantly this way, and your life is not fundamentally different in two days, we must understand that what we're seeing here on display is not the promised norm of how God will change his people, but it is a demonstration of the power and the persuasiveness of Christ's teaching. So what we're invited to do, what we're commanded to do, is simply to move toward it as an act of faith always moving toward his word, asking, looking for how it might expose and change us, and trusting him that his word does not return void. Secondly, this morning and finally, I would encourage us from this example that we're seeing here with Jesus and his disciples, that there are a couple of points of action uh, that this would represent for us if we're going to put this into practice. One of them we've really just talked about. This is the kind of passage that a Christian would read and come away saying, it's time for me to recommit to pursuit of regular daily study of the scriptures. It's time. I've known it. And now in his providence, God has caused me to sit and hear a display of the power of Christ's teaching to change sinners. Okay, all right, it's time. That may look like... um, Committing to that on your own, it may look like asking a friend to uh, start a, daily, a, a, a regular scheduled time of getting together over coffee and discussing a book together, the Bible. It may look like jumping into one of our men's or women's Bible study groups here. Whatever it looks like, I think we have to admit we find in this text a great impetus to us to move toward God's transforming revelation in Christ. The second is similar. It's, it's the same sort of natural impetus that a passage like this pushes us along with. And that would be, surely, a text like this calls us to be thrust out toward the unbelieving world around us. Does it not? We are still living in the last days. We're still living in days characterized by harvest and sowing happening together, characterized by lost people coming into the kingdom of Christ. I have no idea whether our Lord returns tomorrow or a thousand years from now, but he is coming. He's coming. And until he comes, he calls on his people to be busy glorifying him in the places that he's put us. It's a very natural thing in the midst of the kingdom of God and in amidst his people. Normal people in the kingdom of God every day are sharing the gospel and lost souls are being brought into the kingdom. Not because they were smart enough or because they were good enough, but because God appointed them to eternal life before the foundation of the world. And his sheep hear his voice. And what if that person that God has chosen kindly to put in your sphere is just waiting to hear his voice through your loving witness? What do you know? 
of the timing and intent of God's plans. We are given assurance and comfort with the simple formula that we find, characterized in this case by Paul, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If we are such a people that the word of God is dwelling richly in us, and we are such a people that the love of God for the lost is pouring out of us, and his word is pouring out of us, we are a people who will be experiencing. Think of the opportunity and the blessing he's given us. As he says, you're living in the time when sower and reaper will rejoice together. Will you pray with me? We praise you this morning together, Father. We praise you for everything that you are. And maybe in particular this morning, we praise you for the way that your wisdom looms so high above all earthly wisdom. Thank you that this wicked world that we are in, thank you that we uh, the, the wicked human race as a whole, uh, have been sent a savior. Father, we have much to ask of you this morning as we reflect on what you have revealed to us here. We pray for our time. We pray for repentance and revival in our time. We pray as your children for the boldness and faith that can keep us coming back to your word over and over again, asking you to search us out and to lead us in your ways. Father, grant that to us. And we ask you for opportunities to share your word with others. We ask you for discernment and open eyes to recognize those opportunities you've given to us. And we ask you for the boldness to take the opportunities that you provide. Thank you, Lord, for the joy you have given us in allowing us to share in the work of your kingdom. Grant us these things in, uh, in hope and in joy, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to hold on to these truths. And we pray this for your name's sake. And in your son's name we pray. Amen.